Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, What's New in the Treatment of Oral and Head and Neck Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And also, I do want to uh, particularly call out to um, specific uh, organizations that really do um, focus on oral and head and neck cancer. So I want to talk about the Oral Cancer Foundation, um, support for people with oral and head and neck cancer. And um, so I really want to thank them for being a part of the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance. I really want to thank them all for being a, a part of this as well. And because of that collaboration and the specific collaboration with the oral and head and neck uh, organizations, um, we have on the program today over 383 participants. You come from all of the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Ireland, New Zealand, Norway, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call, and it's really a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Today's program is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, and I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker today is Dr. Terry Day, and Dr. Day is Wendy and Keith Wellen, Endowed Chair in Head and Neck Surgery, Professor and Director, Division of Head and Neck Oncologic Surgery, Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs, Medical University of South Carolina, Hollings Cancer Center. And Dr. Day is going to be addressing an overview of oral and head and neck cancer, including staging and diagnosing, surgical interventions, including plastic and reconstructive surgery, and key questions in making treatment decisions. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Day. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be a part of uh, the Cancer Care Teleconference again. And I also want to thank the esteemed panelists as well as the sponsors uh, for their commitment to the patients, the families and friends of cancer patients uh, that are affected by head and neck cancer. I think uh, this is an exciting time in head and neck cancer. There's so many changes uh, going on. I'm going to cover some of those um, today. I also want to thank uh, one of my collaborators, Avi Gupta, for some of the research that um, we'll be including in today's presentation. Just to note, some of the changes that we're going to be talking about today among the panelists um, will include advances in surgical treatment for head and neck cancers, uh, advances in radiation and combination therapies, and then in recent years, uh, major advances in immunotherapy for head and neck cancers. Finally, uh, but importantly, is the staging. The staging system for head and neck cancers has changed. Not everybody knows that, and so patients and their families should understand that the staging is crucial to determine the treatment. We're going to go into that briefly today. 
Um, one of the most important things for head and neck cancer, which you know is important in all cancers, but specifically in head and neck, is the multidisciplinary approach. And you can see that from the panelists on the call today, uh, that it's just not one treating uh, oncologist that's involved. You've got to have uh, nutrition. You've got to have speech and swallowing. You've got to have dental. You have to have a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, a medical oncologist, uh, nurses, uh, radiologists, pathologists, and you know I can go on and on. But it's important that an entire team is involved in the care of each individual patient. And uh, last but not least, is we have to rely on clinical trials in order to get better. So if we're going to treat cancer patients better in the future, it's going to depend on the clinical trials that are going on today, that the results come out in the next few years and will then lead to future treatments that are better than what we have today. So first, I'll cover a brief overview of oral and head and neck cancer. And I know the terms are confusing and some people think this includes brain cancer or spine cancer, but it does not. So I'm going to just uh, simplify it into three broad categories, and that would be mouth cancers, one, throat cancers, two, and voice box cancers, three. <clears throat> so mouth cancers or oral cancers are typically in the mouth and visible with a light by a physician or dentist. Throat or pharynx are usually behind the mouth and may or may not be visible through the mouth as this site does include the back of the tongue and tonsil regions. Third, the voice box cancers, also known as laryngeal cancers, are often from tobacco and smoking and may only be visible with lighted cameras or endoscopes in an ENT doctor's office. Now, all the other cancers, melanoma, skin, thyroid, salivary gland, sarcomas, these may be treated by the same physicians and team members as the ones I just mentioned, but we're not going to have time to cover all of those today. So I'm just going to limit today's talk to oral, throat, and voice box. So next I'll cover the diagnosis and staging. Cancer is usually diagnosed after someone is found to have symptoms or signs of a head and neck cancer. So we have to talk about what are these symptoms. Well, first for mouth cancer, it would be a red or white patch or sore in the mouth that doesn't heal usually after two weeks. And that should be evaluated by a dentist, an oral surgeon, an ENT, or another uh, medical specialist to see if it needs a biopsy to make sure it's not cancer. Secondly, throat cancer. Most people with throat cancer either have a sore throat, a lump in their neck, or trouble swallowing. They may have an earache or bleeding, and they should be evaluated sometimes through the mouth, sometimes with a scope to make sure there's not a throat cancer hiding in the back of the throat. And then finally, the voice box cancer. These people usually have hoarseness or trouble swallowing. They might be coughing up blood. And so those uh, symptoms are some that need to be evaluated immediately to make sure there's not a voice box cancer. The patient will usually then have a CAT scan or biopsy and then be referred to a specialist in head and neck cancer. And after these scans are done, sometimes a CAT scan, MRI, or PET scan, uh, you might hear those terms. And then a full examination of the head and neck area, which includes the lymph nodes of the neck, because that's oftentimes the first place that these cancers may spread. The patient then is given what we call a clinical stage of the tumor based on our examination and the scans or x-rays. 
That includes the site the tumor started, might include the depth or size of the tumor, it might include the number or size of lymph nodes in the neck, and it may also include whether or not the cancer spread to other parts of the body. That results in a staging that's called TNM staging. T stands for tumor, N for lymph nodes, M for metastasis or spread throughout the body. <clears throat> so I think one thing, uh, Caroline, I'm going to diverge a little bit from uh, the usual topics. I want to clarify a point of questions that I get almost every day in the clinic or in the office, and that's the first thing, that oral cancer is not the same as oropharyngeal cancer. And a lot of times people think they sound the same, or oropharyngeal cancer includes oral cancer, but we now know they're not the same. And to make this clear, the AJCC, or American Joint Committee on Cancer, uh, staging system changed in 2018. And they actually have completely separate stages for some of these cancers, and I'm going to go into that briefly. This also, the new staging system, has, has been incorporated into the NCCN, or National Comprehensive Cancer Network, guidelines for how you treat a cancer. And people can go to nccn.org and enter uh, the type of cancer they have. They might know the, the type of cell. They might know the stage location, and, and then they can find out what the best treatments are. And so this has all changed since 2018. So what we need to talk about is that it's important that, that we know that oral cavity cancers, mouth cancers, are usually related to tobacco and alcohol and are not related to a virus. On the other hand, oropharyngeal or throat cancer is most commonly associated with a viral cause and this virus is known as the human papillomavirus, or HPV. So what does this mean for the patient that's recently diagnosed with a mouth or throat cancer, and how does this impact their treatment and outcomes? And one important uh, change to the oral cancer or mouth cancer, which is the front of the mouth, not the back. The back of the mouth is oropharynx again. Front of the mouth is oral cancer, and the staging system now incorporates how deep the cancer grows into the mouth tissues. For example, the tongue, we can now measure in millimeters how deep the cancer is going, and that now is part of the staging system. So every pathology or biopsy report should say how deep is the cancer going, and we know that's important in the staging. So if, you, if you're a patient or family member and they say you've got a mouth cancer and they don't know the depth, of invasion, which is how deep it's going, that needs to be evaluated. Now, on the other hand, the oropharyngeal cancer, throat cancer, actually has two separate staging systems for the first time in history. It used to all be one. Now there's a separate staging system for the virus cancers than there is for the non-virus cancers of the oropharynx. So the virus-related cancers, HPV-related cancers, have a separate staging system than the non-HPV. And most of the non-HPV cancers, uh, those patients have a history of tobacco use. So most of the studies also have shown that this uh, so-called epidemic of HPV throat cancer that's happening now in the United States and around the world, that these patients are getting improved cure rates than ever before for oropharyngeal cancer. So we're excited about that. Um, however, they do go through a lot of the same treatments, whether it's surgery or radiation or chemotherapy or immunotherapy, as the other cancers, the outcomes tend to be better. 
So regarding treatment, let's get to treatment now. For oral cancer or mouth cancer, surgery, according to the NCCN guidelines, is the preferred treatment for early stage and late stage cancers. So if you have a stage one or two, that's early stage cancer, and surgery is the recommended treatment. However, if it's a stage three or four cancer, these require at least two treatments. So maybe surgery followed by radiation, and if that's successful, then no need for further treatments. However, if it's further advanced, then sometimes chemo radiation or other treatments may be necessary like immunotherapy. The oropharyngeal cancers, on the other hand, they can be treated equally well, early stage with radiation or surgery, late stage with either surgery followed by radiation or chemo with radiation. The advantage here that's been uh, evolving over the last 10 years or so is that surgery now can be much less invasive. So people can get what's called transoral robotic surgery through the mouth without any incisions to get the tumor out of the oropharynx. And in the early stage, uh, these tend to have good results, and the results seem to be very similar to the radiation treatment. And late stage, again, would be combination treatment with either surgery and radiation or chemotherapy with radiation. Finally, on the HPV issue, I get every day questions from patients and their family members, what about the vaccine? And I, I have... Uh, I've referred patients to their primary care physicians, uh, to uh, their other physicians that are experienced in the uh, HPV vaccine to discuss the current indications for the vaccine that may be according to their age and other medical history. It's important to emphasize that recent research has revealed that oropharyngeal HPV-associated cancer has a similar HPV or the same to that of cervical cancer. We all know that decades of research has shown great progress in reducing the incidence and uh, mortality from cervical cancer because of this vaccine. So we're excited about that. Now, I'm, I apologize for diverging, but I think that was, those were some important points that I get questions about every day, and I know past teleconferences have, uh, people have asked some of those questions. So I'll move now briefly into surgical interventions, and including reconstruction, and then some uh, how to make treatment decisions. Uh, the surgery is usually an option for most head and neck cancers that have not spread. However, it is important that every patient gets input from a head and neck surgeon, from a radiation oncologist, and from a medical oncologist before undertaking a certain treatment. There may be other options. So, like I said before, most of the early stage cancers, surgery or radiation is acceptable, and the later stage cancers are combination treatment with either surgery and radiation or chemotherapy and radiation. The surgical part of it is important that the tumor where it began be removed, and we also know that we can't just uh, remove the tumor only or scoop out the tumor, but we have to remove some normal tissue around it to make sure we get all the cancer out. Secondly, in surgery, we often perform what's called a neck dissection, and that is removal of the lymph nodes in the region of the neck most likely to hide hidden cancer cells that may be spreading or to take out known lymph nodes that already have cancer in them. 
Finally, if important structures are removed, uh, such as the throat or the tongue or the voice box or the lips or the face, we now have reconstructive surgery that is much more successful than ever before at restoring the ability to talk, chew, eat, drink, and cosmetic outcomes through different types of reconstructive procedures, including what's called a free tissue transfer or free flap, which is essentially a transplant of tissue from one part of the body to the head and neck region to replace skin or lining of the mouth or the bone of the upper or lower jawbone. Finally, I'm going to go just a, uh, briefly into the key questions in making treatment decisions. And really the most important thing, as I mentioned, is get input from a surgeon, get input from a radiation oncologist, and get input from a medical oncologist that is associated with a multidisciplinary team that includes all the disciplines that I mentioned before. And don't disregard the speech and swallowing outcomes, the dental outcomes, the chewing, the dry mouth, things like that, as well as the nutritional status in every single patient. If you're a patient or have a friend or family who just was diagnosed, what you've got to know is the location the tumor started, is it viral related, what is the stage, and what is the cell type. And once you know that, you can go to the NCCN guidelines to get more information. You can talk with your physicians and uh, discuss what the advantages and disadvantages of each treatment. It's also important to remember we now have, for the first time in the history in the last few years, immunotherapy-based treatment for patients that may not be successfully treated with surgery or radiation or chemotherapy. And these have shown some really dramatic outcomes that we're all excited about and hope to see even future improvements in coming years. The uh, NCCN, as I mentioned, develops evidence-based guidelines. It's a great resource for patients, family members, and most of these multidisciplinary head and neck cancer teams will have a tumor board that meets every week to discuss the treatment, and usually they'll call with their recommendations from their tumor board. Again, thanks. Uh, last month was Oral Head and Neck Cancer Awareness Month and, and uh, week. Uh, we also appreciate all the involvement of the Oral Cancer Foundation, support for people with oral head and neck cancer, and the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance for helping patients uh, now and in the future. And thanks again to presenters and cancer care. Thanks again, Carolyn. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Day. That was a really wonderful presentation and just really presented in such great um, expertise to everybody and, and compassion as well. A lot of information for people to absorb. Um, this is a program that you may want to listen to again. This, you, these programs are on replay as a podcast, so you may want to listen to what Dr. Day said again because um, as you're, it, depending on what, where you are in your treatment protocol, it would be very helpful to you to actually um, to think about this in terms of the questions to ask your healthcare team as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Christina Rodriguez. Dr. Rodriguez is Associate Professor, University of Washington School of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Rodriguez is going to be addressing the importance of early genomic testing before you begin treatment, specific examples of how genomic testing directs treatment decisions, and clinical trial updates. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rodriguez. Carolyn, thank you very much. Um, I'm very happy to be back. Um, I had a great experience being on this conference call last year and received some wonderful questions. And so um, uh, I'd like to begin by just echoing what Dr. Day mentioned. It's 
a tremendously dynamic time um, in terms of new treatments for head and neck cancer. And um, it's, it seems as though the landscape of treatment is really shifting and changing um, rapidly over the last few years. Um, and as a medical oncologist who generally treats patients with chemotherapy or systemic therapy, we've seen some great additions to our treatment armamentarium over the past few years. One of the things that I love about being a head and neck medical oncologist is my interface with all of the disciplines that contribute to the care of the head and neck cancer patient. And central to that is our desire not only to give the patient the best possible cancer outcome, but to give them the best possible quality of life um, with their treatment. And that's really what keeps me coming back to clinic day to day. I'm excited to be able to work with patients to accomplish this. Um, I'm going to talk about today um, genomic testing, and this is something that I'm asked frequently in clinic by many of my patients. Genomic testing, um, what it means um, is testing um, tumor for genetic abnormalities, and a lot there's different terms used. Um, some of the most frequent terms that we use for genomic testing is next generation sequencing. Um, this is an arena or field that has had remarkable progress over the past few years. Um, in fact, genomic testing today, very different from five or ten years ago, is much quicker with a, a quicker turnaround time, much less expensive, much more comprehensive, and there are a lot more um, commercially available genomic tests that we can do on patients' tumors. Um, it's important to realize that genomic testing is not necessarily applicable to every head and neck cancer. I think one of the things that Dr. Um, Day mentioned that I want to emphasize is that head and neck cancer is really a group of very different malignancies, and we're learning that every day. Um, in the past, we used to lump squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck all together. Nowadays, we make a distinction between HPV-positive oropharynx cancers and cancers that are related to um, smoking and, and alcohol. But there's also rare tumors now that benefit from genomic testing. And this is why it's important when embarking on your treatment to really discuss these with your the specialists who are caring for you. With regards to the most common type of head and neck cancer, squamous cell carcinomas, genomic testing is really not a, treat, a, a test that we do as a standard um, approach for patients. Um, it's, it's a test that is, can give us useful information, usually might give us some options for clinical trials, but the appropriateness of this test for someone with squamous cell carcinoma is something that I would encourage you to discuss with your medical oncologist. Um, there are um, some uh, there have been um, some advances in terms of approvals of drugs that are specific to genetic mutations located in certain tumors. And one such example that I'd like to bring up is the um, approval of a drug called larotrectinib. This is a unique FDA approval because there is no specific disease that this drug is approved for, but it is approved for any tumor that carries a, a mutation in a gene called NTREC. Okay? And NTREC, um, in the publication that led to the FDA approval of this medication, can be mutated in a small percentage of patients with thyroid cancer or salivary gland cancer. These are the two types of head and neck cancers that were represented in that study. So it is important if you have a thyroid cancer or salivary gland cancer to ask about whether or not it's appropriate to test the tumor for um, an NTREC mutation. 
Another arena, um, another subset of head and neck cancers that have um, received FDA um, approval based on a genomic ab or a gene abnormality is anaplastic thyroid cancer. Recently, um, a study came out of MD Anderson showing that a combination of two pills, the brafenib and trametinib, can be very effective in patients with anaplastic thyroid cancer, an uncommon but rare thyroid cancer that carries a specific mutation in the gene BRAF, BRAF V600E. Um, and it's, uh, it, and it, it's in these sort of scenarios where we find that there is good clinical utility in um, submitting um, uh, genomic testing for your tumor. Increasingly, um, there are clinical trials that are addressing what to do with the um, what uh, what the appropriate treatments are for patients with with um, uh, genetic abnormalities in this tumor and two very large um, uh, federally funded studies um, one is called the match trial and the other one is called taper t a p u r um, are open in the United States um, these are um, cans uh, uh, clinical trials that um, assign patients to a specific treatment based on a, a, an abnormality uh, noted through genomic testing. And we anticipate that as these trials complete accrual that we will gain more insight about um, you know, how best to treat patients with these types of genomic abnormalities. Um, and so with that, I'd like to move on to discussing sort of some clinical trial updates. This is a huge topic, um, but for simplicity's sake, I think I'd like to divide um, it into um, really where, what the approaches are uh, clinical trial-wise uh, for squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck. Um, in squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck, I like to think of available clinical trials as being divided into trials that are looking at incorporation of newer agents in curative intent treatments, and by and large, those trials are generally looking at the utility of using immunotherapy in combination with many of the treatments that we know can cure patients with head and neck cancer. And this would include combining immunotherapy with primarily surgical approaches or concurrent chemotherapy and radiation approaches. And this is, again, another area where you want to be able to talk to your multidisciplinary team about what clinical trials might be available for a patient in your situation. Um, the other set of clinical trials are really looking at how um, best to treat patients who were, whose cancers were not cured or recurred after aggressive treatment. And there are numerous combinations and various exciting um, directions that are being taken um, in this subset of patients. Many of them involve immunotherapy in combination. Some of them may involve genomic testing, such as looking for a specific abnormality and testing a drug if you carry that abnormality. And there is another avenue now that is, um, is a very exciting avenue um, called cellular therapeutics. This is a, a new set of treatments that, takes, that uses living, thera uh, living therapeutic modality, Some, someone's own T cells or um, T cells or immune cells or altered T cells that would have um, activity against the tumor. These are being offered in a few clinical trials throughout the nation. They have gained traction in other malignancies, specifically hematologic malignancies, and there is a lot of interest in finding out whether or not this is an effective treatment for squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck. With regards to rare tumors, um, it's also been a lar um, there's also been increased awareness that 
rare tumors um, are, um, uh, you know, are, are, are entities that are in need of better treatment options, and so there are large tumor, there are large um, uh, trials that are looking at genomic-based um, treatments for rare tumors. There is a rare tumor immunotherapy trial that's open um, through um, SWOG or the um, Southwest Oncology Group. Um, it really is. Uh, it, it really is dependent on on what your type of disease is, and I think again, this would really require that you discuss this extensively with your medical oncologist. I'd like to also mention that our national meeting, American Society of Clinical Oncology, is going to convene in a few weeks, and we're expecting some you know, exciting um, developments to come out of that, and that likely next year, this time of year, that I'd probably have even more um, new developments to talk about um, when that time turns around, and if I'm invited again, of course, Carolyn. But I think I will um, conclude with that. Um, um, I, and, you know, I'm happy to take any questions that are emailed to me and um, like we did last year. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rodriguez. And there is no doubt that you will be invited back to speak, of course. <laughs> and um, it's a wonderful presentation, actually, um, outstanding and, and really Actually, you have really presented a whole new world for people to understand, which is so important and, and such an important um, part of, of the total treatment um, for head and neck and oral cancer. So thank you so much, and um, thank you for a major contribution. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Misikowicz. So Dr. Misikowicz is Associate Professor of Medicine. Hematology and Medical Oncology, Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Nisikowicz is going to be addressing new chemotherapy and immunotherapy options, concurrent chemotherapy and radiotherapy, and side effects, symptom, and pain management. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Nisikowicz. Uh, hello, everybody. So I just want to... Uh thank um, you know people that put this meeting together uh obviously family and friends uh of our patients patients themselves sponsors and colleagues that obviously are uh, in this panel um so uh, as i'm going to start i want to discuss what are the treatment options for head and neck cancer some of them they will cover already but some of them are not so i'm a medical oncologist so um in my practice we give chemotherapy targeted therapy or immunotherapy and i just want to give the very simple definition what these treatments uh, are. So, and then we're going to be moving to the other aspects of treatment of head and neck cancer. So, when I tell my patient what chemotherapy is, I say it's sort of like a kind of a poison that we're trying to poison the cancer without poisoning the patient. And obviously, consequently, there are some side effects that are associated with chemotherapy. So, this is a very imperfect, I would say, form of therapy. The next form of the therapy that we give, we call it the targeted therapy. So the definition of the targeted therapy is in theory we're trying to target the cancer and sparing the healthy tissue. It's sort of like a magic bullet that is delivered directly to the cancer. So this is the second form of the treatment. And the last one is immunotherapy that we are very excited because this kind of treatment storms into our office and obviously uh, we have so much media attention and obviously it's used in various cancers including head and neck. So what is immunotherapy? So many times what happens is that human body cannot see the cancer. 
So consequently, the human body does nothing, obviously, to fight with this cancer, which is strikingly different that, for example, we get the flu or any kind of infectious process that our body clearly can see that something got in, it's being recognized by our body, and our body fights with this. Unfortunately, with cancer, it's slightly different. Our body is kind of tricked, and this cancer is invisible. So there are different forms of immunotherapy. The one, immunotherapy, uh, we use what is called vaccine. And what vaccines they do, and these are therapeutic vaccines, I'm going to be covering the, the gorgeous of the different type of vaccine. The therapeutic vaccines, they make cancer visible. So by making the cancer visible, our own immune system all of a sudden can see the cancer and obviously can fight with the cancer. So this is the first form of immunotherapy. The second form of the immunotherapy, something that many times we, we call checkpoint inhibitors or PD-1 or PDL one this is something that we use quite commonly in our office. What those medications, what they do, they turn on immune system. So you can think about the situation that, let's say, before giving those medications, you have about 100 soldiers going through your body searching for cancer, unfortunately cannot find them. If you're going to kind of double this number, and then you're going to have more, so obviously the chance that the immune system will find it and fight with this cancer are really higher. So it doesn't help to recognize the cancer. You, know, you don't make the cancer more visible, but you kind of have more manpower to fight with the cancer with hope that you're going to, the immune system will find it and, uh, and fight with this. And the third form is that sometimes the cancer is a little bit hidden. Uh, and even though you're going to mobilize the, you're going to mobilize the, the immune system, or sometimes even you're going to give the vaccine. Unfortunately, the cancer is creating some kind of a shield that the cancer is still invisible, and we call it microenvironment. And there are the third form of agents that, when given, they change this environment and obviously help those soldiers to kind of penetrate through the shield and finally, obviously, fight with the cancer. So this is what we have to have in mind as we think about immunotherapy. It's what's exciting. I'm kind of telling my patients that be using your own body to fight with the cancer because we're not giving you some kind of a poison. We're kind of telling your own body to fight with it. So having this in mind, I'm going to move to etiology. What are the reasons um, that some patients they develop the cancer? And some of them can be viral. So for example, in nasopharyngeal cancer, there is a virus called EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, that can lead to the cancer. Not always, but can. As mentioned before, in autopharyngeal cancer, the HPV virus can lead to the cancer. And obviously, there is a huge portion of head and neck cancer that is caused by smoking. Why it's so important? Because if you know how the virus looks like, you can create a vaccine. Because the vaccine should mimic, obviously, the virus. So this is slightly different with smoking-related cancer because if we know the viruses, if we know how they look like, we can create those vaccines. And many times, from many clinical trials, that they offer those therapeutic vaccines that are directly targeting, obviously, those viruses. Something that I have to mention, obviously, what is the difference between the Gardasil, the vaccine that is offered to kids, versus the therapeutic vaccine? The Gardasil, the purpose of giving Gardasil is to help the body to protect the body from virus to enter it. So basically, the virus cannot get inside. But once the virus is inside, the cortisol will not give you the protection. That's why it's not recommended. It was not recommended for patients that have been exposed to the virus. But now there is a slight of the difference. And because we have the head and awareness, I just want to mention this. Historically, we used to use HPV vaccine for kids or for young people at the age from 9 to 12 
or for people they didn't start, they hadn't started sexual activity because obviously we, we didn't want them to be exposed to the virus. But now those recommendations were changed. So actually uh, the bar was moved and people up to 45 years old can receive the vaccine. And what is the reason? Because this, this vaccine will protect you from nine different viruses. It's HPV-16, this is the most common virus that is seen in head and cancer, but there are some other viruses that may be not as common but can still lead to the cancer of the head and neck or different cancers. So the rationale is that maybe as of now you've been exposed to just one type of the virus and this vaccine will not give you protection, but will give you protection for the other viruses that are kind of included in this vaccine. So what I tell my patients, and especially when the question is, what are the ramifications of being a partner or what we should do for the kids of patients with head and cancer or even, you know, other people? So all those people, they should be vaccinated against the HPV because it's going to give you protection. So now moving on, how we treat head and cancer. So we treat with surgery, which with radiation that we discussed before, but we also give chemotherapy, targeted therapy, or immunotherapy. Those are the modalities. When it comes to chemotherapy, it has been used for quite a while with radiation in locally advanced settings. We also had targeted therapy that has been used for quite a while in combination with radiation um, quite successfully. So obviously the second question is we want to make things better. So the question was what we, what's going to happen if we're going to combine those two treatments, meaning chemotherapy and targeted therapy together, and we're going to give it a radiation. Will we get the better results? And recently there was a study that was published that showed promising results that maybe, yes, we can get a better result as we're going to combine those two modalities of the radiation. But subsequently, the study showed there is no improvement in survival. And unfortunately, as you combine those two treatments, it comes at a significant cost in toxicity and the quality of life. So actually, it's not really recommended. The second question that we were asking, and obviously as you have two treatments that are being used, such as targeted therapy and chemotherapy, is there isn't a difference between them. And for many years we didn't know what's the best, better way to combine the radiation with chemotherapy or with targeted therapy. And obviously um, this is a very general statement, so there are some exceptions of the rule. So recently there were two studies published that told us that actually chemotherapy gives us better results when it comes to overall survival and the chance of having the cancer coming back, and there is no difference in quality of life. So many times, even though it's an attractive form of giving targeted therapy because in theory it's going to spur um, the health of tissue from being exposed to the toxic um, side effect, uh, chemotherapy performs better. So we still use chemotherapy quite often in combination with radiation. So now the question is, can we use immunotherapy? And I'm going to say outside of the clinical trial, no. But this is the, the excellent idea to encourage you to participate in such a clinical trial. And there are a large number of those clinical trials that they offer immunotherapy in combination with radiation. And obviously not only is it going to help us, it's going to maybe help yourself, and it's going to help other patients, that obviously at some point is going to benefit when the clinical trial is going to be completed. So there is another option that um, many times when we treat patients with chemotherapy and radiation, the question is, is it enough? Should we, de should we do something after chemotherapy and radiation? 
And this question was asked, actually. We give chemotherapy, we used to give other medications, and unfortunately, giving any form of the treatment after chemotherapy and radiation didn't provide us with any benefit. And it's, this form of the treatment is called adjuvant treatment. So it's sort of like a situation that we still believe there is some kind of a microscopic cancer even left behind after chemotherapy and radiation. And we do that final clinic. We're going to just, we want to eliminate this cancer, those microscopic, microscopic disease. So we know from lung cancer, and I know it's not the topic of the discussion, that in lung cancer, when patients receive chemotherapy and radiation, and subsequently, patients that receive immunotherapy for one year, this patient, they did significantly better than the patient they didn't receive immunotherapy. So we do have clinical trials. They're asking this question. So this is another opportunity to recommend clinical trials for this patient. And obviously, this clinical trial is not for everybody. If somebody has a very small cancer, maybe it's not the best clinical trial. But for patients that they had many lymph nodes involved or the tumor was large, I think that this patient could participate in such a trial. Now I'm going to be moving to metastatic disease. So as of now, when somebody has a metastatic disease and never was treated, the current standard of care is chemotherapy. We, we are in the situation, actually, that there was a recently published study. It was the study by Mark, Keynote 048. It was presented at the European conference. that looks very promising, and probably the guidelines and the standard of care is going to be changed because I'm assuming that the market's finally with the FDA and waiting for the final approval. So what this study shows? So the study shows that if you're going to randomize patients to immunotherapy alone, that is minimally toxic and it's pretty effective, versus giving chemotherapy, that is currently standard of care, or giving a combination, which is a combination of chemo and immunotherapy, in some situations obviously gives excellent results. And I'm going to just cover those. So there is something called, the, I would call it the probability test. What is the chance that the immunotherapy is going to work? And we call it the PDL1 expression or the CPS4. So what is the chance that the immunotherapy is going to work? So in this study, if the probability is high and the, we use the CTS score is above 20, we know that the immunotherapy given alone without chemotherapy is going to give us excellent results with minimal toxicity. So it's very encouraging. At the same time, the same study showed that if you're going to be having a score between 1 and 20, we should be using chemotherapy and immunotherapy because maybe immunotherapy alone is not going to be strong enough. So we should be using this combination to get excellent results. For patients that they don't have CTS score, meaning it's below one, we don't know what to do. And I'm assuming that the company, Mark, will publish this data. So we don't know what to do with this patient. So some people, they debate that chemotherapy would be the best option or maybe the combination, but as of now, we don't know. But again, it's not FDA-approved uh, yet, but it's going to be just a matter of time. Uh, and this is actually the consequence of maybe your participation in the study. Maybe some of you obviously participated in the study, and now we can use it. So this is a very similar situation what we see in lung cancer. So what happens for patients that they progress after chemotherapy? Something that, as of now, it's still standard of care. What we can do with those patients? So we can use immunotherapy. So there were two studies, one from Merck and the other one from BMS, showing that if you do not give two patients 
that they just failed immunotherapy. Immunotherapy, they, these patients, they do better compared to the patient that you would normally give chemotherapy. So as of now, for patients that they failed platinum-based chemotherapy based on the two clinical trials, we would offer uh, immunotherapy for those patients because not only it's going to give, give us better results, it's going to be significantly less toxic and give us better quality of life. So this is the kind of the current landscape in terms of where we are and how we treat head and neck patients. And what are the future directions? What are we going to be getting into? So there are a few questions. So I give you an example that at some point we combine chemotherapy with targeted therapy. Now since we have immunotherapy, the question is what we should combine immunotherapy with. Should it be immunotherapy plus immunotherapy, maybe two agents, like for example, vaccines that are going to help us to make the cancer visible and give them the, something that's going to mobilize the immune system? Maybe it should be chemotherapy plus immunotherapy, or maybe it should be immunotherapy plus targeted therapy. And we're not going to get the answer, obviously, unless we're going to participate in those clinical trials. And obviously, not only we want to create better treatment options, so they're going to give us better results and make people live longer, or maybe even cure it, this is one. We want to do it with significantly less toxicity. Because we know that some of those treatments, obviously, they can cause pain and some discomfort. And three, with the good quality of life. So obviously, I just want to emphasize that many of those patients that they underwent treatment with head and neck cancer, they suffer from many complaints, and we cannot ignore them because um, these patients, they can complain about difficulty swallowing, they can have chronic pain, they can have the dryness of their mouth, um, they can have some difficulty swallowing, they can have difficulty tasting food. So. Uh, these are functions, and these are obviously things that are important in our life, speech. So family support and continuous follow-up and close follow-up with those patients is very important because we want to address them. So the follow-up does not stop at the moment that the, finish, the treatment is completed and finished. We still have to follow up those patients for a much longer time to make sure that not only the cancer is not back, but make sure that they were able to go back to community and have normal quality of life. So as a conclusion, I would say there was a tremendous progress in the treatment of head and neck. We have excited treatment modalities, some of them available only in a clinical trial, and I would strongly encourage everybody to participate in one. And I'm looking forward to have another talk because, as was mentioned, that we're going to have an oncology conference in a matter of two weeks, and I'm sure we're going to have more exciting treatments as a result of that. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mystikowicz. That was wonderful. Just very comprehensive and informative, and I just really want to thank you so much for, for your presentation. Um, thank you. And um, our next speaker is Dr. Douglas Peterson. Dr. Peterson is a professor of oral medicine, Department of Oral Health and Diagnostic Sciences, School of Dental Medicine, Chair, Program in Head and Neck Cancer and Oral Oncology, NAE Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Connecticut Health Center. And Dr. Peterson is going to be addressing tips to manage dry mouth and care of your teeth and gums before, during, and after treatment, the importance of communication amongst your healthcare team, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. And this truly is a multidisciplinary team, and delighted to, to, in, to introduce all of you uh, and to bring on board Dr. Peterson. 
Thank you very much, Carolyn. And I'd, I'd also like to thank my other colleagues today as well for providing really such an excellent foundation for my comments over the next few minutes. As, uh, as we've heard, there's been very important and successful advances in the treatment of head and neck cancer, and that is also the case relative to approaches for care of the mouth. Uh, before and during, and importantly, as we just heard, even after the completion of treatment of the head and neck cancer. And, and the goal really becomes to prevent or at least minimize any problems with your mouth uh, during the cancer treatment and then the many years after the treatment ends. And I'll be summarizing a few of these key approaches over the next few minutes. I'd also like to note that we're covering a lot of ground today, as usual, in our cancer care workshops. And so I'd like to uh, really reinforce that there are some excellent resources available, including through cancer care, for uh, you, the patients, and your families, as well as the, the cancer team relative to clinical management of, of head and neck cancer. And as we've also heard, I'd like to just again emphasize the importance of this ongoing and very clear communication uh, with the healthcare team, with, with you the patient at the center of this discussion. It's so very, very important that you feel comfortable in asking your questions and making sure that all of your concerns are addressed. And I'll, I'll touch on, on this again uh, in just a few minutes. So the big picture really becomes that high-quality supportive care, such as mouth care that we'll now be discussing, very much contributes to excellent cancer care overall. So it's not just curing the cancer, but it's supporting the cancer patient through that and in the years after the cancer treatment. So we have heard about some very exciting and currently available and uh, pending ways to treat head and neck cancer, depending on the uh, results of upcoming studies. And uh, these new advances include uh, ways to better focus radiation on the cancer itself and protect more of the normal tissues of the head and neck, as well as we've heard uh, drugs and uh, biologics that are specifically focused to attack the cancer cells. Uh, and for example, the genomics of cancer is really creating innovative new strategies for uh, the treatment of head and neck cancer. So as we've heard, uh, the paradigm is really changing in very, very exciting ways. And one of the key outcomes of this changing paradigm is that increasingly so, the cancer team is able to protect more and more of the normal tissues, including tissues of the mouth and the head and neck region. So in the interest of time, I'm just going to talk a few minutes about some very practical take-home messages related to managing dry mouth and uh, care of uh, your teeth and your gums uh, before and during after, after treatment. Just as an introduction, the words, the, the definitions continue to be very, very important. Uh, we heard Dr. Day talk about the very important distinction between oral cavity and oral pharyngeal. Uh, same too when it comes to the oral cavity per se. When we talk about dentition or dental, we're talking about teeth. When we're talking about the mouth, we're talking about the oral cavity, which includes the teeth, the gums, uh, the lining tissues of the mouth, or mucosa, as well as the salivary glands. Head and neck radiation, whether or not it's given with chemotherapy, can cause either temporary or even sometimes permanent changes in the mouth tissues. And, and given the complexity of these, some of these complications, it's really important to have that comprehensive management by uh, the cancer care team. 
Now, some of the complications that are caused by the high-dose cancer treatment occur only during the cancer treatment itself and then clear up a few weeks after that treatment ends, for example, the, the mouth sores or the mucositis. This is something we anticipate we can help the patient with, and when the cancer treatment ends, the mouth sores typically go away uh, over the next four to six weeks later. However, some other complications may persist for the lifetime of the patient, including the dry mouth caused by head and neck radiation. So just a few practical tips to cope with the dry mouth. It, it's caused by the direct, long-lasting effects of head and neck radiation on the salivary glands. So the salivary glands can't produce enough saliva or, or spit to keep the mouse mouth moist and to protect against mouth infection. I'd also like to note that dry mouth can also be caused by some of the more uh, recently emergent genomic-based treatments, such as the immune checkpoint inhibitors that we just heard about a few minutes ago. Uh, the good news here is that unlike dry mouth that's caused by head and neck radiation, which may persist for months or even years, the dry mouth that's associated with the immune checkpoint inhibitors is, is typically transitory and may well resolve over time. So it doesn't tend to be as long-lasting as salivary compromise caused by head and neck radiation. Now, the reason dry mouth can be a problem in patients in the months and years following radiation is that uh, there can be difficulties in the taste of food, the chewing, the swallowing, and speaking, some of the quality of life issues that we've touched on today. But it can also um, contribute to increased risk of infection in the mouth. With less saliva, there's increased risk of infection. And this can include dental cavities. Now, one may think, well, dental cavities can be easily treated, and if they're small and detected early, they, they can be easily treated. But if those cavities progress, and it's really a type of bacterial infection that's causing that cavity, in the extreme case, it can lead to a complication called osteoradionecrosis. And this is a problem that can develop in the jaw bones, either the upper jaw bone or the lower jaw bone, because of the infection in the setting of radiation. And so it's really, really important to have this ongoing assessment by the dental team as part of the cancer team to make sure that if there are any problems developing because of dry mouth, they're detected early and treated. Now, as far as management of dry mouth, and I'm certainly going to uh, uh, defer to my uh, expert colleague, Ms. Gilmore, in just a minute here, there are a few approaches with dry mouth that uh, we can advocate. We want to keep the mouth moist and hydrated. Uh, sipping water or sugarless drinks often is uh, very, very helpful. Avoiding drinks with caffeine, such as caffeine, tea, some sodas, uh, caffeine can dry the mouth, and that's the last thing we want to do in somebody who's experienced a dry mouth. We really recommend that patients don't use tobacco or alcohol because these can also dry out the mouth. And we ask that patients avoid spicy and salty foods that may irritate the mouth. So it's really important to have this uh, discussion with your cancer care team, work with the dentist, work with the dietitian and nutritionist, and find the diet that's best for you, including a diet that's low in sugar content so that cavities don't form that may lead to other problems. So whether or not you develop a dry mouth, it's very important to have your mouth examined on a regular basis in the months and years after your cancer treatment. And if any problems are detected at that point in the mouth, we can catch them early, and the treatment is typically very, very uh, 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 straightforward. 
So as I close, just a, a brief comment on the importance of this communication amongst your healthcare team and, and communicating with your healthcare team about any quality of life concerns that you may have. The team approach, as we've heard several times, is so important for a successful cancer treatment outcome. But I'd just like to again remind us it's not just curing the cancer, but it's curing the cancer with a very high quality of life. And so we want to make sure that you feel very comfortable in always asking us any questions you might have at, at any time. And this way, the cancer care team can help you in the most meaningful ways possible. And this approach certainly applies to management of your mouth with the dental team as part of the cancer team, and certainly as well to your overall cancer treatment in general. So as I, as I close, and as I mentioned at the beginning of my remarks, the big, the big picture really is that high-quality supportive care, such as the mouth care that we've been discussing just over these past few minutes, significantly contributes to overall cancer care, supportive care, curative cancer care, excellent cancer care. And this approach will very much enhance your quality of life during and in the years following your state-of-the-art cancer treatment. So I'm going to stop at that point, turn this over to Carolyn again, and thank you all very, very much for your, your kind attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Peterson. That was really outstanding, and, and really your presentation is outstanding, and I think that um, it's, it's so important what you said in terms of care of the mouth and, and uh, of, of, your, of gums and, and mouth, both before and after treatment. It's just so vitally important. And um, and to keep that going and to ask that whole multidisciplinary team effort as well. So thank you. Um, and thank you as an esteemed colleague um, on, for being on these programs, really. Um, it's just it's so important. Um, and people don't recognize the importance of, sometimes they underestimate the importance of their, their care of their mouth and, and teeth and gums. Um, and so I so appreciate your highlighting this on the call. Thank you. And our next speaker is Alicia Gilmore. Uh, Ms. Gilmore is a dietitian. She is... Um, a clinical nutrition uh, expert. She's a clinical instructor, clinical nutrition, University of Texas, Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. And uh, Ms. Gilmore will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips and speech and swallowing rehabilitation. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Gilmore. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm so excited to be a part of today's presentation to talk about uh, my favorite topic, nutrition, um, and how we can help our patients with oral and head and neck cancer. Uh, thank you again for our sponsors and for everyone else who's been on this call to um, offer up their expertise on this topic. Uh, we've talked a lot about different kinds of treatment, um, so now I'll focus on the things that you can do um, to help keep your body strong uh, during treatment. Nutrition and um, fluids, hydration are, are so important uh, to promote, you know, the best tolerance for your treatment and provide the energy to do the things um, that you want to do every day. It should be a priority for, for patients to make sure that you're getting enough protein, enough calories, enough fluids. Um, I tell my patients the better nourished you are, the better that you will tolerate your treatment. Uh, when we think about, you know, these different things, protein, fluid, and, and calories, focusing on protein is important. Your needs are higher for protein during treatment. So when you're choosing your meals and you're choosing your snacks, you want to think about including foods 
um, that have protein, like uh, animal proteins like chicken, fish, turkey, um, eggs, cheese, dairy products, as well as beans, soy products, nuts, nut butters, and seeds. Um, I'd recommend that when you do eat these foods, um, you know, with your meals, eat them first. So if you fill up or if you're having difficulty, um, at least you get that protein uh, in first. Then you can also use um, nutrition drinks or smoothies or um, protein drinks to also help meet your needs. Um, fluid, of course, hydration is essential. A good goal for fluid intake is to try to drink at least 8 to 10 cups of fluid every day. Um, to kind of provide a visual, that's about a 2-liter bottle minimum. Um, sometimes it's helpful to fill one of those up or to get four of the 16-ounce water bottles. Just kind of provide a visual for the day so you know where you are and where you need to be. Um, any fluid that's not caffeinated is a better choice. Um, so, of course, water is awesome, but also juice, um, sport drinks, flavored waters, um, I think if you have an occasional cup of coffee or tea, that's fine. Just make sure that you're drinking mainly these other fluids during the day. Um, as Dr. Peterson was talking about sugar, um, I always caution my patients about drinking um about watching what the beverages that contain any kind of added sugar, um, especially if you are experiencing um, dry mouth, just because that can contribute to the dental caries. Um, also, I think we are what we eat. You know, so when we eat good foods and we fill our bodies with good foods, we're going to do better and feel better. And so things that have empty calories or a lot of sugar really don't do anything for us. Um, some treatments, um, such as radiation, can sometimes require more fluid than what was discussed. So, of course, you always want to talk to your healthcare team um, and make sure that you know, your goals are, are right. Your calorie needs can also change during treatment. If you find that you're having difficulty meeting your energy and maintaining your weight, you can always add snacks between your meals. If you're not a snacker, it might be a time to start. Um, add foods that have higher calories to what you're currently eating, like um, the famed avocado on toast that adds more calories, or adding cheese to vegetables or pasta or salad. Um, you might also have to modify the texture of your food. For example, um, foods that are softer, foods that are cut up more, foods that are more moist or, or kind of overcooking your food sometimes um, can make them easier to chew and swallow if you're having um, that difficulty. You can also incorporate um, liquid nutrition um, like smoothies made with protein or other nutrition drinks um, that can help support your body and keep it strong. If your nutrition needs are not met by your diet, your body has to get energy somewhere. So it will look to your muscles for energy, and that can increase your fatigue, um, decrease your endurance, as well as decrease lean body mass, which is so important um, as far as our overall health. Um, that can also affect you getting your treatment on time. Um, so we want to make sure that you have the energy to do everything that you need to do. Um, even if you're overweight, you can still be malnourished. So meeting with a dietitian may be helpful because um, they can provide you your specific protein, calorie, and fluid needs as far as any kind of diet modification you may need. If you are you know, going through treatment and you're struggling with swallowing, if, if treatment's making it more painful, more difficult for you to swallow, it may be beneficial to meet with a speech-language pathologist. They can help assess your swallowing process, determine um, any kind of texture modification, consistency modification, um, educate you on exercises and stretches that are really important to help maintain your swallow function during treatment. Um, your swallowing process can change, so you want to make sure that you're getting, you know, meeting with your team and, and talking to your physician and getting the help that you need to help you do as well as you can during treatment. 
if you struggle with the difficulty swallowing and you're not meeting your needs, you it may be time for a feeding tube. You may want to talk to your uh, medical team if this is something that can help support you during treatment. This may be something that may be short-term, you know, just um, four to six weeks, or it may be something that you may need a little bit longer after treatment to help continue to keep you strong, keep you uh, nourished, keep you hydrated. Um, a feeding tube can also help keep your treatment on track, so and, uh, prevent having any breaks. If you do have a feeding tube placed during treatment, and as long as it's safe for you to do so, you still want to try and make sure that you're eating and drinking something by mouth every day to help maintain um, those muscles and that swallow function. There's medications that you uh, that can assist with side effects from treatment, so you want to talk to your healthcare team about anything that you're experiencing, something that's different, and the sooner the better. If you're experiencing side effects when you're eating, sometimes it's helpful to keep a record of what you're able to eat and what kind of symptoms you're experiencing, so that you can share that with your dietitian or your healthcare team, so they can help strategize and figure out um, what the best um, kind of support they can offer for you. Um, there are so many different members of the healthcare team that are um, here to help, and they're dedicated to um, helping patients uh, undergoing treatment for oral head and neck cancer. So make sure you know your team, know how to get a hold of them, and letting them know symptoms sooner rather than later um, is the best way to help you do the best that you can during treatment. Thank you so much for allowing me to be part of this uh, workshop. I'm going to pass the line back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much. Um, that was wonderful, Ms. Gilmore, just a very informative and and, and just a lot of information for everybody, so thank you so much. And um, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care. Um, uh, Cancer Care is a, a national nonprofit organization, um, and it's staffed by oncology social workers. And we provide um, free psychosocial services and programs. And what does that mean, actually? So we offer help with um, just with some of the practical and financial aspects of coping with oral and head and neck cancer or any type of cancer. We also um, provide counseling services to people who are living uh, with oral and head and neck cancer or cancers in general. Now, we also have a whole lot of other types of programs as well. We offer um, counseling services, and the word counseling is often people talk like, what does that really mean? But it really means talking with someone who really is listening to you and really can help to uh, have you think through some of your concerns or issues. And so they are these are social workers were trained to speak to you about your concerns. And we also offer support groups, both on the telephone, so telephone support groups, as well as support groups um, online. And the online group program is growing tremendously. I think we have now about 138 online support groups. And they um, offer support to people who are of all ages, um, um, both for caregivers and for for um, people um, at all different uh, ages and um, all different types of cancers as well. So that's a, just a, a wonderful resource. And the nice thing about an online support group is that you, again, uh, for, and both of them, you don't have to travel anywhere. They're basically online or on the telephone, and you can post any time of the day or night. The telephone groups are at a specific time. And we also offer these educational workshops um, and those um, on a variety of topics. Um, and um, so there's just a lot of assistance out there just to kind of help you to get all the information that you need, which is so vitally important to your to your care and to your well-being. Now, we do actually, um, I would like to actually try to uh, see if we can take a question. We have a question from one of our participants here, so I just want to try to take this um, a question from one of our participants. Um, and the question, uh, this question both is for both uh, Dr. Um, uh, Peterson and 
for Ms. Gilmore. Um, and the question is um, that um, uh, my husband has lost his appetite. Is there a way that I can make my husband's favorite foods again so that they are easier to eat? So, Ms. Gilmore, do you want to start with that one? Yeah, I'll take that one. Um, okay. It's. I think it's very hard when um, patients lose their appetite to, to think about food or think about things that they want. Um, sometimes I have to say uh, I would caution you about favorite foods during treatment. If your husband's experiencing any dif- any changes in taste or having any nausea, um, different things like that, sometimes eating foods at that time may make him never want to eat them again. Um, so I would kind of wait until the time is right and when things sound good to him to, to maybe reintroduce those favorite foods. If someone's having a decrease in appetite, sometimes offering smaller, more frequent meals is easier. I I think um, visualizing like a salad plate like you have and serving meals off of that is sometimes easier. And instead of, you know, our traditional three meals a day, um, sometimes just starting off with something small, uh, you know, in the morning and then every two to three hours, sometimes offering something. Sometimes if someone's not hungry, they're really going to have a hard time eating a very large plate of food. So thinking of something small, you know, maybe like a piece of bread with some to- uh, with some peanut butter or half a sandwich or uh, some cottage cheese and fruit, you know, just something small. And sometimes offering that more often is helpful. And then sometimes my patients, if they don't have an appetite, really don't know what they want to eat. So sometimes it's better just to take that and go, okay, you know, we're having um, peanut butter on toast, and then for lunch we're having this. And sometimes that's very helpful just to make sure that they stay on track and get the nourishment that they need. Um, and if all those strategies aren't working, it's always good to talk to your healthcare team and see if they have other ideas um, of what what could be helpful for your for your husband. Thank you. And the question for Dr. Peterson. Um, I have been diagnosed with oral cancer, and I fear my teeth are in bad condition. What are my options for dental work before and after treatment? Dr. Peterson, if you could just address this. Yeah, thank you. Um, excellent question. And, again, it's so important that when the diagnosis of oral cancer is made and the staging is in place and the uh, pathology is in place, as Dr. Day took us through, and the treatment plan is in place, um, it, a big decision point is whether or not radiation is going to be used. So as we heard a few times uh, during today's call, radiation is often used in the more advanced stages, but but, uh, radiation is not always used in every case of oral cancer. So if radiation is going to be used, then it's very important that teeth and gums that have disease be at least stabilized by the dentist, if not that disease eliminated. And, and frankly, if, if there's very bad gum disease in certain areas and the radiation is going to be delivered to those areas in a few weeks, then the best treatment, again, to be discussed with the dentist and the rest of the team, might be selective dental extraction, dental removal. But again, this is a decision that's between you and the dentist and the rest of the team before the radiation therapy begins. And it's so much better to take care of any potential problems in the mouth before the radiation begins so that we can essentially eliminate certain problems after the radiation treatment ends. So working with the dentist and the rest of the cancer team before the radiation begins is uh, really, really helpful. Thank you. Actually, I want to thank all of our speakers today. You've been phenomenal, actually. And um, I want to thank you. um, And I I know that we said this call would be an hour in length. This will be a little bit longer, but we wanted to take a few questions. Um, I do want to thank all of our speakers who have been phenomenal. I want to thank all of our participants for being on the call and also for those who did 
and asked some questions. And um, I did. I also want to let you know that I know that many more of you have more questions that you'd like to get answered. So we do have, of course, um, all the resources that we mentioned up front. And at the end of the program, you will be getting an evaluation. And the evaluation will include all of the oral and head and neck um, organizations, nonprofit organizations that exist that really can be a great fountain of information for you. So that's something that I just want to be sure that you all know about and have their, all their information. Um, and uh, however, um, and also I, we often give also the National Cancer Institute as a resource as well. They have an 800 number, but they also have um, a live chat feature on their website where you can post a question. And of course, your own healthcare team. They know you the best, and they, of course, can answer your questions. But for those of you who like to check things out ahead of time, we definitely recommend that you go to very credible websites for your information. So work with your healthcare team on that, and we'll give you some resources to start with that are really important. Most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to think that you're alone in coping with oral and head and neck cancer, any type of cancer. You are now part of this community of support here and that we really are here to help you. Um, that's really important to, to keep that in mind. There are times I know when all of you will feel alone, but just know that there are places out there that you can either contact on the web or you can actually contact um, actually by phone and that we're here for you. That's, that's really important as we conclude. Um, also, um, I, I want to just let you know that Cancer Care has an app. Many programs do have apps, and the app is a meditation app. There are all types of apps out there. It's free, and many people find it as it's a meditation app, a relaxation app, which many people find very helpful. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. You've been a, a, a remarkable audience and participants, and all of you, and I look forward to being on some of our other programs. We have quite a large number of programs coming up in the next month or two or three, and actually um, you'll be getting information about those as well. So thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.